0: morning everybody. This morning we're going to continue our series in the book of Acts. So if I can ask you to turn to Acts chapter 5, we're going to look at Acts 5 verses 1 to 11 and the title I've given to this morning's message is Don't Fake It. Don't Fake It. Acts 5. I think you've got to fake it to make it. Could well be One of the big mantras of our day. You've got to fake it to make it. From body-perfect Instagram photos, to exaggerated job applications, to Facebook updates about the perfect day out, to Twitter tweets, sharing a new and original thought that turns out to be very unoriginal and stolen from somewhere else. Maybe you've seen some of the online articles that expose the fake uh, photo fakery on sites like Instagram. One article I came across this week, I didn't actually go down and look at it because it probably wasn't going to be helpful, but I saw the title, Instagram versus reality, the truth about those unrealistically perfect pictures. The truth is, of course, that they're often faked. They are drastically faked, so much so that a person's own mother wouldn't recognize them in the faked and doled up photo that they've put online. But it seems that often the way to get on in the world is to big yourself up and focus on making others see not the real you, but a fictionally superior you, to rewrite your personal history and bend your present reality as much as is needed in order to make other people think well of you and be impressed with you. And of course, though things like Instagram have only been around for a few years, the desire to show off and impress has been with us ever since the fall but what happens when that desire to impress gets brought into a church, into the community of God's people? We can all of us be tempted to bring it with us, to want to impress, to be accepted, to have other Christians around us be impressed of us, to have, uh, have them make much of us, rather than actually come just to love and serve others and to honour and please God. What makes it even more dangerous is that on the surface, it's very difficult to tell these two things apart. Even as we try to assess our own hearts, what, why am I doing the Christian things that I do? Is it for the right reasons or the wrong reasons? Is my devotion fake or genuine? What we need is the Holy Spirit's help to assess ourselves. And our passage this morning, which is a sobering account from the first days of the early church, is given to help us see something of the stark difference between those two, between genuine devotion and fake devotion. It begins actually, actually as we read last week, with Joseph, also called Barnabas. So let's just dip back into chapter 4 first of all. Verse, reading from verse 33, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Joseph is, like pretty much most of the church at that time, a new believer. He's recently had his life transformed by the gospel. Now his sins have been forgiven and he's come to know God through the sacrifice of God's son. And he now wants to use what he has to serve God and serve his fellow Christians, particularly with an eye to those who are in material and financial need. So we're told he voluntarily sells a field that belongs to him and lays the money at the apostles' feet for them to distribute to the poor. And the apostles like to call Joseph by nickname, we're told, Barnabas, because he's such an encouragement wherever he goes. Wherever he goes, people experience Barnabas' encouragement. You know, maybe they, they turn to each other and they say, oh, look, there's Barnabas. Thank God for Barnabas. He's such an encouragement to be around, such a blessing. Oh, he, he brings so much grace to us in the things that he does. They are blessed by his kindness and his love. And Luke here clearly singles out Barnabas In order to encourage all who would later read Acts, including us this morning, to strive to be like Barnabas. It's an encouragement to want to be a person who brings profound encouragement and blessing to other believers. This is who God wants each one of us to aspire to be like, to, in a sense, follow people like Barnabas as they follow Christ. But... There is a counterfeit example that Luke shares here as well. A way to look superficially like Barnabas on the outside, on the surface, but not actually be like Barnabas underneath. Enter Ananias and Sapphira. Reading from verse 1 of chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property... When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. On the surface, and perhaps especially to many who were present that day, it seemed like Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira had all done the same thing. Each had sold a piece of property and literally laid the proceeds down at the apostles' feet. Each had given a generous gift for the poor. And yet one of them is commended and held up as an example. And the other two are struck down by God, stone cold dead. It's no wonder, is it, that great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. But the question that must be asked is this. What was it that was so starkly different between these two? In fact, I think this morning there's a few questions that it would be helpful to ask of this passage. Perhaps some of them are already surfacing and percolating in your mind. So I've got four headings this morning, and each of them is in the form of a question. Hopefully they're questions that many of us are already hoping for answers to. The four questions are these. What was their sin? Why did they do it? Why did God respond so severely? And then how should we respond? First of all, what was their sin? Why or what did they do? What did they do? The first clue Luke gives us is in verse 2. Have a look at verse 2. He says, With his wife's knowledge, Ananias kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. You see, unlike Barnabas... They had conspired together to not give away the full amount from what they'd sold. So we might begin to assume that their sin is one of greed. They they kept it for themselves. They should have shared it. They should have given it away. Perhaps they shouldn't have wanted to keep back anything for themselves. But but in verse 4, Peter makes clear to Ananias, that's not it at all. You didn't have to sell the property at all. You you weren't under any obligation to do so. And you didn't have to give away the money that you made from it afterwards either. It was it was their choice, whether to sell and their choice how much to donate. The real problem, Peter says, is that you lied. Well, how did they lie? The clue's in the word that's translated keep back or kept back, which means to keep something back in a secret and dishonest way. To misappropriate something. And this isn't a commonly used word. It's used one other time in the New Testament, in Paul's letter to Titus. And there it's translated as pilfering. And it's only used one time in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Joshua 7 and the story of Achan. And that that story bears remarkable similarities to this one. And I think that's very intentional. There... Achan took some of the spoils of war that had already been dedicated exclusively to God, and he kept them, and he hid them away for himself. Uh, And if you remember the story, he, he dug a hole inside his tent in order to hide the gold and the silver. And while those treasures remained hidden, judgment fell on the whole nation of Israel, and as a result, 36 other Israelite soldiers died. They lost their lives in battle. And Israel lost their battles all because of Achan's sin. So I think we'd be right to assume then that Ananias has done something similar. That he's entered into some kind of agreement before the sale of of his property. That he'd made a promise to give away the full amount raised to the church. He'd publicly dedicated the sale price to the Lord. Maybe he'd done the equivalent of writing an IOU on one of those big checks like they do for children in need. I pledge to give all the proceeds from selling this land to the church for the sake of those in need. Maybe he'd made this promise in front of many witnesses as well. Certainly the apostles knew what he would promised. And most of all, God knew what they had pledged and promised. And so when they sell the property and they donate only some of it rather than all of it, but also then they pretend that this is all of it, They're guilty not only of embezzling church funds and robbing God, but even more of lying to the church and lying to God. Ananias and Sapphira's greatest sin here is the sin of hypocrisy. Their greatest sin lay not in failing to give all the money, but rather in trying to pretend that they had given all the money. Kent Hughes says this was pious pretense, religious sham, simulated holiness, Christian fraud, spiritual deception. They were hypocrites. And not because of a spur of the moment bad decision either. They had conspired together beforehand to do this. First 2 tells us he did this with his wife's full knowledge. They would thought about it and talked about it and decided on this course of action together. And so when Sapphira comes in later on, not knowing that her husband has died, she quickly doubles down on the lie that she and her husband had agreed to tell, just as we're so often, aren't we, tempted to do the same thing when we've tried to deceive someone or fake something, and then someone confronts us over whether it's really true. It's, it is really easy, isn't it, in that moment, having already told one lie, having already chosen the path of deception and, and not wanting to be found out, it's so easy to then double down on the lie in the hope that perhaps they still won't find out. I think it's like that with many other sins as well. Once we do something once and don't immediately repent of it, it becomes so much easier to do it again. I'm sure you've experienced this. I have. We've opened Pandora's box and we've left it open by not repenting. Lying is especially insidious in this way. We, we tell one lie often because we want to escape disapproval. We want people to think well of us. Then we have to repeat the lie or tell another lie in order to cover up the first one. Or again, we risk disapproval. But it is a terrible choice to make. The problem we overlook is that while we might be able to fool some other people, no one can fool God. Other people, it's true, might be taken in by our deceit, by our faking it in order to make it, but not God. He sees the real us. God knows our real deeds and the motives behind them. That's the real flaw in the plan here for Ananias and Sapphira. Verse 5, you have not lied to man, but to God. To paraphrase the end of every Scooby-Doo episode, they would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for God. So why, Peter asks Ananias, did you lie to the Holy Spirit? Why, he asked Sapphira, did you agree together to test the spirit of the Lord? That's our second question this morning. Why did they do it? Why did they do this? While there's no explicit answer in the text, they both drop down dead before they're able to give an answer. Still, the clues are there. And sadly, it's all too easy to deduce the first and biggest reason why they did it, because the same temptations in my heart and your heart in situations big and small every day, they did it to impress. They did it because they wanted to look better than they really were, more generous than they really were. They, They wanted to be admired and praised. They were praise seekers. They were spiritual posers. They wanted to look like Barnabas, without actually being like Barnabas. They wanted the reputation of Barnabas without seeking the heart of Barnabas. They were pretending a devotion that wasn't really there. Maybe they wanted the special attention of the the church leaders, the apostles. Perhaps they wanted the applause and the admiration of others. Whatever their precise motive, they acted just like the Pharisees that Jesus so often called out for their hypocrisy for pretending to be better than they really were, for wanting to be known and praised by other people for their righteous deeds. What's perhaps perhaps most unsettling of all, certainly one of the big unsettling things here, is it was Ananias and Sapphira's seemingly greatest act of devotion, an act that seemed to offer the greatest proof in their lifetime of how devoted they were. Probably it was still the largest gift they'd ever given, But it was that very act that turned out to be the cover and the disguise for their greatest and final act of hypocrisy. Imagine this pair in our church. It really would have been almost impossible to tell the difference between them and Barnabas on the outside. This couple, they could have gone for years, even a lifetime, keeping people fooled. And being held up as pillars of Christ-like love and generosity when actually they were anything but. But God knew what they had done. He knew what was really going on in their hearts and what they really craved. The praise and admiration of other people. And that, I think, points us to the second reason they did what they did. They didn't have a right view of God. They forgot who God is. Maybe they didn't really believe that the Holy Spirit was in their church. Or they didn't believe God could see what they'd done in secret. Or maybe they thought God didn't care. He's got bigger things to go on with. He doesn't care about this. Or that even if he did care that he wouldn't possibly intervene, that he would forgive them no matter what, even if they weren't sorry, perhaps they assumed they'd have time to repent further down the line and make up for it later on. Whatever their working view of God was, it was wrong. Because God knew and he confronted them and they died. And behind it all, Peter sees a third reason for their hypocrisy as well. And that is that Satan is at work. I heard someone say recently that Satan has two goals in life. Firstly, to stop people ever becoming Christians in the first place. But if he fails at that one, then secondly, if they do become a Christian, his job is to rob us of spiritual comfort and witness and our joy, to rob us of our spiritual comfort, of our witness and our joy. Satan, we've seen already in Acts, has already been assaulting this fledgling newborn church from the outside, hurling all sorts of persecution at them. But now he intends to attack it even more destructively from the inside by sowing the first seeds of hypocrisy. Peter said, "Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit?" Peter doesn't mean here that that Ananias was possessed by the devil when he did this thing. He's not letting Ananias off the hook. But in choosing to lie to the Holy Spirit and grieve the Spirit, this couple have allowed themselves, maybe unknowingly, to be used and led by Satan rather than the Holy Spirit. They've allowed themselves to be used by Satan. The devil loves to destroy what God has made. And one of his deadliest weapons is hypocrisy and dishonesty. His intent is to use them, and if possible, even use us, to damage and destroy God's church from the inside. Which begins to answer our third question this morning Why did God respond so severely? Why did God respond so severely? Well, because, but above all else, God loves His church. And He will protect His church from destruction at all costs. In the same way that a doctor will undertake even radical and painful treatment to root out disease and save a patient's life, God will act in the same way for his church. That's why Paul calls the Corinthians to exercise urgent church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5. And and then later in that letter, he strongly warns them against misusing the Lord's Supper. Interestingly, in Acts 5.11, it's the first time the word for the church is used in uh, in the New Testament first time we see this word church, which has got to be significant. I think it's making clear who this community is that God is now intervening to protect. They're his people. They're his blood-bought bride, the bride of his son. He will not have them or their reputation be damaged or destroyed, especially at this early stage in their history by the deadly cancer of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is deadly to Christian fellowship, to churches. Lies and deceit, they're like spiritual kryptonite that when allowed to go unchecked in a church community, they destroy from the inside out. First of all, because they threaten a church's unity. Falsehood ruins fellowship. It ruins relationships. Deception destroys trust and openness in our relationships. Ephesians 4, verse 25, Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. If we're members one of another, we must not lie to each other. Secondly, hypocrisy in the church, it destroys our unity. Secondly, it destroys our witness. Just think how often you've heard the criticism against Uh, the church from people outside the church, that the church is just full of a bunch of hypocrites. Now sometimes, hopefully often, it's not true, but sometimes it is true, and wherever it is true, it severely harms a church's testimony and witness. And then thirdly, the final reason God is still so opposed here to lies and hypocrisy and deception amongst his people is quite simply that God is still holy. Holy. He wholly pardons and forgives and lavishes his mercy on all those who genuinely put their faith in Jesus. But he still hates sin just as much as ever. The gospel hasn't changed God's hatred of sin. The cross of Christ doesn't diminish that. The cross, in fact, reveals the seriousness of sin in far blacker hues than anything we could have otherwise imagined. The Gospel Transformation Bible says Jesus did not choose to die for us because our sin was trivial. Our sin was great, but he chose to die for us because his love for us was greater. So it's not God's grace, but the devil's lies. Remember, the devil is the father of lies. It is the devil and his lies who tries to teach us that in light of the gospel, sin is no longer a big deal. That lying isn't a big deal. No, it's a massive deal. God is still holy. And spiritual deception and faking it is still a great evil in his eyes. Which leads us to one more question under this third one this morning. So still under this third heading. But the question is, were Ananias and Sapphira genuine Christians? And the truth is, we just don't know. If they were genuine believers, then they're conspiracy to lie together as as serious and as wrong as it was it it would not have separated them from God's love true Christians can never lose their salvation by sinning however serious that sin and so their deaths is this is if this is the case that they were genuine Christians their deaths would not have been punishment but instead a, a an act of severe yet loving fatherly discipline to save both them and the church from greater harm due to their sin. In which case, the moment they dropped dead on earth, they would have opened their eyes to find that they were safe and most importantly forgiven in heaven. But if they were fakers through and through and not genuine Christians, then their sudden deaths were just the beginning of God's judgment, of their experience of his just punishment for their hypocrisy. We don't know. Derek Thomas writes, were they believers who fell into a very great sin? Did God remove them to save the church from their influence and to save them from the hardening that repetitious sin can induce? Or as seems more likely, were they hypocrites through and through? Whatever the answer, the hypocrisy of their actions betrayed a disease best removed quickly, lest it infect the rest of the church. The two burials that took place that day were something the church can never forget, God hates hypocrisy. The death of Ananias and Sapphira was a lesson that God will not tolerate phony Christians. And sooner or later, their end will be terrible. So fourthly, the fourth question this morning, how should we respond? How should we respond to this? And the answer is with fear and reverence. With fear and reverence. That, that was the effect Luke twice tells us that was the effect on all who were there to hear about and witness the events of that day. Verse 5, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. Verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Luke's wording there suggests that this was the effect on those both inside and outside of the church, both Christians and non-Christians. And two verses later, Luke records the differing responses of those who weren't yet Christians. Some people were frightened off and dared not join them, but others were irresistibly drawn. In fact, this incident quite remarkably sparks off something of a spiritual revival. Maybe that surprises us. Verse 14, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women which I think is really interesting because we sometimes think that, that talk and evidence of God's holiness will put people off. But it didn't here. Many more were saved because of it. Because the church, the apostles and others were out preaching the gospel. This God who is holy, but who has sent his son to rescue sinners and bring them to himself. So many more were saved because of what happened on this day. And for those who were already Christians... Uh, as Matthew Henry writes, if you remember we, I quoted Matthew Henry last week, he talked about the combination of holy joy that was in the church, a real gladness but also a reverence, where he writes about this passage, it didn't damp their holy joy, but it taught them to be serious in it and to rejoice with trembling. It reminded the believers that God is both loving and holy and that those two things, they go perfectly together. It's like Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Maybe you've heard this before. He's good, but he isn't safe. He's the king, I tell you. So how should we respond today then to this passage in our time? What does a healthy fear of God look like for us here this morning? I think it looks like three things. First of all, don't be a fake Christian. Don't be a fake Christian because you can fool others, but you can't fool God. You could spend your whole life just trying to appear like a Christian on the outside and remain something else entirely on the inside, and it would all be worthless in the end. God knows. God sees. He's not fooled, even if the people around you are fooled. And What you need, what all of us need, above all else, is not a bit of religion in our life, not just a little bit of church, a bit of help to be a more morally upright person. No, what we need is a personal saviour from our sins. Jesus Christ. We need God's son. What you need is to actually become a Christian through faith in him. Rather than just putting on the outward of appearance of a Christian, you need to turn to him in repentance and faith and become a genuine Christian. And if, you, if you're here this morning and you don't, you don't know what makes a genuine Christian, please come and ask and find out. Don't miss out on the chance. Please don't hold back because you're worried what the people around you might think or maybe even worried that the people already thought I was a Christian and now I'm not so sure. None of that matters. Nothing is more important to be honest about and get right than this. God is waiting with open arms to welcome you into his family and properly into his church as well. Why not come along to the first session of Christianity Explored this Thursday? It's a wonderfully non-threatening environment to find out more, or come and speak to us afterwards, or turn to someone after the service, someone you know is a Christian, and just ask them to pray with you right where you are. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, even here this morning. Whatever you do, don't just be a fake Christian. It will not end well. Secondly... Don't be a Christian who fakes it. Don't be a Christian who fakes it. The, the problem with Ananias and Sapphira, if they were genuine Christians, is they were far too concerned with trying to impress other people. They thought that faking it was the way to make it. They forgot that the Lord sees and knows all things, that he sees our thoughts and he sees our hearts and all the things we do in secret. They forgot that he's holy and hates deceit. They forgot that left unchecked, hypocrisy is cancerous and deadly, not just to ourselves, but to those around us as well. And they forgot, most importantly, that God is full of grace and mercy towards those who are just plain honest about their sin, about the mistakes that they've made and the sinful messes they get themselves into. The one thing God can't abide or even help with is when we refuse his help. When we pretend we don't need his help through pretense and dishonesty and cover-up. Peter had to confront Ananias and Sapphira over their hypocrisy and their lies. And this morning the Holy Spirit is perhaps confronting many of us, many of our hearts, about our pockets of hypocrisy and cover-up and lies. Let's ask ourselves, where am I prone to faking it? I say where because I could ask, am I? But... I'm prone to faking it. I suspect you are as well. I think every Christian is. So the question is where? Where am I prone to trying to fake it? Where do I attempt to make others think that I'm more devoted and godly than I am? Where do I boast in my good works and maybe even boast in works that I haven't done? Where do I pretend I'm doing better than I am? Where do I try to make it look like I've got it all together when I haven't? I very much feel the weight of this, particularly preaching on a Sunday, and I'm sure Pete can relate. It would be so easy to give the impression that up here I've got my life all together, but I haven't. Every week I'm battling a lack of devotion in my heart and stubborn attitudes in my own life. We're all warring against our sin, and rightly so. What we mustn't do, the one thing we mustn't do, is just try to cover it up under a cloak of pretense and hypocrisy. This past week I had a plasterer come around to our house having a little bedroom replastered uh, but I had to get him around early because I'd stripped off the wallpaper and found out that underneath there were some hideous problems going on. The, the wall is falling down, the, pla- the old plaster is falling away and uh, it, it looks awful. There's giant holes and cracks and bulges all over and my first instinct honestly when I was taking off the wallpaper was why did I do this? Why did I take off the wallpaper? Why did I uncover this? My second thought was, can I just repaper it and cover it over? Or can I have the plasterer just skim over it and cover up the floors? Well, as the plasterer painfully but honestly informed me on Thursday evening, I think the pain was more mine than his, obviously, but he honestly informed me there's no simple skimming over this mess. All of the old plaster, it needs to come off to reveal the wall underneath and then and only then can it be cleaned up and replastered and remade. Wherever we see sin in our lives, whenever we see sin in our lives, let's not give in to the temptation to just cover it back up and pretend it's not there. Let's instead expose it, tear off the bad plaster, repent of it, confess it, seek help to rebuild. Let's not settle for just a flimsy covering. The biggest problem for Ananias and Sapphira was not even that they were prone to want to impress others. It wasn't even that they gave in to the temptation to lie and behave like hypocrites. Their biggest problem of all was they knew they were hypocrites and they were okay with it. While we'll never be free from the temptation to hypocrisy in this life, we mustn't allow ourselves to be okay with it. We must keep on uncovering it in our hearts and going to war with it Fleeing the temptation to lie and to fake it, to cover up or pretend we're something we're not. Don't be a spiritual poser. Don't be a praise seeker. Be a servant. Be a learner. Be a worshiper. Let us pursue truthfulness and honesty in every situation. Let's prize the truth like it's the finest of riches. And the only way to do that, thirdly and finally this morning, is to live in the truth of the gospel. Live in the truth of the gospel. The gospel frees us from pretending. It frees us from having to pretend. It frees us from wanting or needing praise from other people. The gospel tells us all our sins and our failings are forgiven, so we don't have to hide them. They've been forgiven, we've been washed clean. It tells us we're accepted by God, so we don't have to earn anyone else's acceptance. It tells us we're loved unconditionally in Jesus. It tells us that we're already genuine members of God's family. And so we already have a legitimate part to play in his body. We don't need to prove ourselves. We don't need to fake it in order to make it. God has put us here and he has promised to use us. To live in the truth of the gospel is to live like Barnabas. He wasn't worried about what people thought of him. He he wasn't concerned whether people thought he was encouraging or not. He simply wanted to encourage. He lived in the others-centered freedom of not having to impress people. He lived in the freedom of self-forgetfulness where he could just focus on loving God and loving other people. His desire, you might say, was not to impress but to bless Because he knew how much he'd already been immeasurably blessed by God in Christ. So the world we live in, it says you've got to fake it to make it. But God says, not so with you, my children. Washed and redeemed by blood. Whatever you do, don't fake it. God says you don't need to. Be real. Be honest. Don't live to impress. But rest in my love and then live to bless. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the honesty of your word to us this morning. That here you reveal both your holiness and your fiercely protective love for your church. Oh Lord, we pray, please reveal to each one of us habits of deception or hypocrisy in our lives. Lord, we, this morning together we renounce and we repent of any lies we might have used to make others think we're more spiritual than we really are. Lord, we want nothing to do with such practices. We long to be an honest and humble people. Please forgive us and cleanse us and help us to walk in the light of your truth, in the light of your gospel of truth. Lord, we we thank you as well for your amazing patience with us and for Jesus whose blood washes away our every sin. Lord, please help us now in response to such grace to be like Barnabas, not Ananias. We pray, help us to walk in honesty and integrity, not living to impress, but resting in your great love, and then humbly and eagerly living to bless. And may we, Lord, as well as a church, be known to the world around us, not for hypocrisy, but for gospel-saturated honesty and generosity. We pray this, Lord, for the glory of Jesus' name. Amen.